talking to the religious leaders of his day. He says this. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So right in the middle of John's gospel is Jesus' Reformation Creed. His confession of faith. His doctrinal statement on what he believes about the scriptures and what they teach. He says, you search the scriptures... Sola Scriptura, good thing, right? The writings of Moses, great thing to look to. But you have missed the principle of interpretation, which is the key. They speak of Jesus, he says. If you search the Scriptures, if you study the Scriptures in any way and do not come to faith in Jesus, you have not rightly understood the Scriptures. That is Jesus' clear teaching. In the midst of John, he, he's, he's telling them, faith in me is the goal. Uh, Paul would say likewise to Timothy, Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings since your youth, which for him was the Old Testament, the writings of Moses and the prophets. And he says, and the purpose of those sacred writings of which you have been acquainted with from your youth is to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. That's the point. Faith in Jesus through understanding of the Scriptures. It's Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, by faith alone, according to the grace alone that He gives, and to whose glory? To His glory alone. You receive glory from one another. You're concerned, and you've given weight to the wrong person. And this morning, what I want to do is uh, look at John chapter 8, with that as the kind of framing of our understanding and interpretation And to put glory on Jesus. Because sometimes, as Reformation people, as Bible people, as people who love the Word and whose worship service is centered in a large part around the proclamation of the good news and the gospel, sometimes we can take ideas and concepts and worship them instead of the object of those things. We celebrate the discovery of salvation by grace. Amen? It's a gift of God. 
by grace. It's nothing that we have earned. And grace is a beautiful thing, but it's the one who dispenses the grace that is the more beautiful thing. Jesus is the one whom is the gift of God to us. That is the object of grace. Faith alone, that you can put your faith in something, but it's the object of the faith, right? We don't just cry faith alone, faith alone. We cry faith alone in Jesus. (laughs) It's the object of our faith that makes our faith so precious. And this morning, I want to kind of refocus our faith and our appreciation and our love of Jesus as the object of Scripture and as the one whom glory is due. So in John chapter 8, if you'll look with me, I'll begin reading in, uh, chap- in verse 2. We'll read sections as we go and then um, comment along the way. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisee brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Now I just happened to see in the back that the Christian education class is going through the Gospel of John. Sorry. Um, didn't mean to pick a text that they're already going to be studying. But I also know that Craig's been preaching through Deuteronomy from the pulpit. So this morning, I'm going to do John and Deuteronomy together. That's all I'm going to use. Okay? Deuteronomy is a beautiful book. Um, it's the one book that Jesus uses to resist Satan. I'm sure this has been pointed out to you. Well, when he's being tempted... In Jesus' temptation, the only book that he quotes from is the book of Deuteronomy. I've often wondered if my spiritual health was dependent upon my knowledge of Deuteronomy. Now, in any other congregation, that would be a problem. But I'm sure Craig has been faithful to ensure that you are as equipped as Jesus. But this morning, what I want to do as commentary is just reflect upon Deuteronomy's teaching on this passage. Oftentimes I hear people say, oh, I just don't read the Old Testament. I just, I just focus on the New Testament, which I say, well, the New Testament is an Old Testament commentary. The New Testament is just the Old Testament Bible study. It's just the Old Testament being explained to us in light of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. The book of Romans is an Old Testament Bible study showing how from the beginning God has promised and fulfilled his promise in Jesus. So the Old Testament that I want to look at today just to show you um, that truth and how it points to Jesus, we'll just simply look at Deuteronomy. So the first question that I ask when I read this passage is they come to him and they say, Jesus, in the law, Moses said this. So what does it actually say about adultery in the law? Well, if you turn back with me to Deuteronomy twenty-two twenty-two, as a quick reference, we can see in the book of Deuteronomy what Moses said. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Okay, so there it is. Now, any of you see anything or hear anything that made your ears perk in light of the current situation that Jesus finds himself in? 
if a man is found lying with wife of another man, then both shall die, the, the woman and the man, right? So here they come and they say, here, Jesus, here is a woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery with herself. Like, there seems to be a critical part of the equation missing, just from the casual observer, right? You don't have to be a, an acute Bible student to go, hmm, seems like there's something a little off here. Now, the interesting thing about this, according to Deuteronomy, if you continue reading, not only uh, is the, the man missing, obvious, uh, important ingredient in the equation, but did you know that according to Deuteronomy, actually, a woman is given a reason by which she is not punished? In other words, for adultery, the man is always punished. The woman is not always punished. In other words, if there's anyone guilty, the scriptures assume the guy's guilty. And all the women here are like, yeah, of course, you know. If you read on, the actual stipulations state that if a woman is in the city, the assumption is that if she is being pushed in an immoral way by a man, that she's going to seek purity and cry out for help. In other words, this is rape. And that the noble men of the city, anyone who hears a cry for help, will then come to her aid and help her. And that so if a woman is in a city with a man and finds herself in this situation, consensual relations would make her guilty. But the assumption is that if she's in the city, the only way this could happen would be a non-consensual. She's going to cry out for help, say, this guy is being or treating me in an unholy way, in an unrighteous way. Kill him. (laughs) But it says if a woman is in the country, in other words, John's Island, right? And she, she's out in Wadmalaw, and she cries for help. There's no one around because she's in a field. So she's, she's in the country. There's, no, there's not the density that's needed for someone to hear her cry. She can be isolated. The man is still assumed guilty, but it's a, she's given a pass if they're in the country, even if it was perhaps consensual. The assumption is you were in the country. If you cried for help, no one probably would have heard you and could have been able to help you. And so, therefore, you're excused. But the man, always guilty. Here they come, there is no man. And just file that away, just something to notice, right? Now this they said, were they concerned about purging the evil from their midst? Was that their whole concern in bringing this case before Jesus? So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Are they so concerned about the evil of Israel that that is why they're bringing the case? No, they're so concerned about the Holy One of Israel who's in the midst and exposes their evil. And they're trying to get rid of him. Deuteronomy 16. If you want to flip back a couple of pages. When you appoint judges and officers, those who arbitrate cases like this in your towns... They shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. Justice and only justice 
shall you follow? Are they seeking justice? No, they're seeking to remove Jesus. Have they shown partiality? A little bit. Right? Of course they've shown partiality. There's only the woman here. So then Jesus bends down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Now, many of you have probably heard that quoted, probably by people who are defending politicians. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone, right? It's the most quoted scripture by non-scripture-believing people, is let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Um, that's, I just want to rightfully interpret this passage so that we understand, you know, at at the end of the story, you know what Jesus quotes. I always hear that quoted. I never hear the go and sin no more, which is how the story ends. <laughs> so Jesus tells them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, remember why they're here. Why are they here? They're here to test Jesus according to the law of Moses. Did the law of Moses require that someone be sinless in order to uphold the law? didn't. So why would he say this? I mean, does the law require that a police officer never, never have exceeded the speed limit in order for him to pull you over and issue a citation? Do you say, officer, have you ever exceeded the speed limit? Who are you? Let him who has never sped write the first ticket, right? We don't say that. No one operates that way, right? And that's not what God is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying here, right? Just confined to this situation of two passages of Deuteronomy, of the law, by which they are testing Jesus, have they sinned? Have they shown partiality? Are they seeking justice and only justice? No. See, he's pointing out the flaw. It's, 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 this story is in a lot of ways like someone who's been brought before a judge and they were found with some illegal substance, but it was gained by a, an illegal means, like there wasn't a, war, a search warrant issued, right? And so the judge dismisses the case because the law was broken in order to bring someone to the law. Is that person any less guilty? Right? They can't be held liable according to the law because those who are charged with bringing and upholding the law have broken the law. And therefore, the case is dismissed, not because of the person's innocence, but because of the guilt of those who are seeking to bring that person to justice. The people that are bringing this woman 
to justice, are they innocent? They are not innocent. Look at another passage for me. You know, they start walking away. Let's look here in, um, I believe it's Deuteronomy 19. Yeah, 19. I'll put my finger here in John so I can come back. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, look, that's what we're going to come back to in a minute. But when you keep reading, look what it says. If a malicious witness, do we have one of those? Do we have malicious witnesses? We do. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute, so the Pharisees that brought the woman and the woman are now appearing before Jesus. Here's the situation in which we find ourselves. Both parties to the dispute are there. They are malicious witnesses. If they arise to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. Little did they know they were actually appearing before the Lord. Before the priests and the judges, and the judges shall inquire diligently, which is what Jesus has done. He's inquired diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. This is how you shall purge the evil from your midst. So Jesus inquires diligently, and he says, Are you guilty? Is this all in the up and up? <laughs> Are you really here to purify Israel from unrighteousness? Or do you, is there something else? Is there an ulterior motive here? Well, the hypocrisy and the partiality is clear, because there is no man to anyone who's there. And he exposes that they are malicious witnesses. They've already said, John tells us, they are trying to kill Jesus. They want him dead. They are trying to bring charges against him. They are, the person on trial here is not the woman. But, Jesus says, I am the Lord whom you have appeared before. And now not only is she on trial, not only am I on trial, but you're on trial. So, if everything's on the up and up, but they know, man, that's a big stone. I'm going to just drop that right where it is. <laughs> because what should be what I'm pressing to have done to her should be done to me. And they start to walk away, right? And then so Jesus looks at her and says, "Woman, where did everyone go? Has no one condemned you?" Now, r- remember, there need to be witnesses. And so she says, "No one, Lord." And he says, "Well, neither do I condemn you." Go from now on and sin no more. So again, Jesus is gracious, but the point of this passage is not that Jesus is gracious. The point of this passage is that Jesus is righteous. Jesus is the one who perfectly keeps the law in this passage. Because on the two to three witnesses are required to condemn this woman. There are no witnesses Can Jesus condemn the woman? Even if she's guilty, can he condemn her according to the law by which he's being tested? No. So Jesus says, you can go, not because you're innocent, but because I'm righteous. 
and he gives her a commendation. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Now, does, is Jesus gracious in this passage? Yes, he is. But you know who he's gracious to? He's not just gracious to this woman who we all seemingly think Jesus is so forgiving. Those mean Pharisees are just, you know, a bunch of religious leaders who are, who are just, uh, and those are the ones that are the, the bad guys. And Jesus just kind of winks at her sin. He doesn't wink at her sin. He doesn't just say, you know, I'm going to die for that. Just put it on my tab. He doesn't do that. He says, I am righteous, and according to the law, you are free to go. But stop sinning. But he is gracious to them. He lets them walk away. He's gracious to the self-righteous hypocrites and the religious leaders who use his word in a way that is not representative of his character, who use the scriptures to hurt people, to shame people, to um, expose people for ulterior motives, who, who twist the word of God for the purposes of man to seek their, to preserve their own glory and rob God of his. And he lets them walk away. So Jesus is gracious in this passage, but to the, to the people that you would never expect him to be gracious to. They did what the scriptures say. They we're seeking to boil a goat in its mother's milk. Isn't that an odd proverb? What is that all about? You know, odd teaching? What, what is that all about? You're not supposed to use the source of life as an instrument of death to something. He's not saying don't kill goats. But he's saying don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. That which was supposed to give that being life and nourishment and health using it as an instrument of death. We don't, it's like using a mouth that was created by God to bless people, to give them curses, James would say. That's not the, what the mouth was created to do. And here, Jesus is saying, you are using the word of God in order to bring death to others, to harm rather than to bring life to, bring, to preserve your own glory rather than to glorify me because the scriptures were written about me and the reason that you don't understand them is because you don't see that they point to me. And so Jesus is gracious to them and he allows them to reconsider the role and the responsibility that God's given them. Now lastly, Many of you have probably, most of you, your ears probably perked just because I said lastly. You're like, lastly? Wow, that's it? Because I'm a preacher and I can say in 50 minutes what most people can say in five. You know, it's my spiritual gift. <laughs> but lastly, I promise, look at what John tells them. John says, I could have filled the world with books about Jesus. So he get, when he gives us details, they're details he wants us to know. And he says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And he stood up and then he bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. What is that all about? You ever wondered that? You ever heard sermons about that? What did Jesus write? Here's what Jesus wrote. If John wanted us to know what Jesus wrote, he would have told us what Jesus wrote. 
So I'm going to be silent where God's word is silent. I've learned that is a good practice. Where God has, seek, has not spoken about something, I am not going to take his place. Where the one whom Jesus loved, who has compiled this gospel account, has failed to tell us that detail, I'm not going to try to fill in the blanks. Because I think that the point that John is trying to make for you is to draw your attention to the fact that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger, not what Jesus wrote with his finger. He tells us twice that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger. Why? What does that have to do with this at all? If you're not going to tell us what he wrote, why are you going to tell us why he wrote? Why not just leave it out? If you read the story and you take that part out, seemingly it makes perfect sense. So why did John create this little tension for us? And it was to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus wrote with his finger. Deuteronomy chapter 9, last time we'll turn back there. Deuteronomy chapter 9, good place to go to see this. You also see this in Exodus because God did this and told us about this twice, just like John is telling us and that Jesus is telling about us twice. Deuteronomy chapter 9, what is Jesus being tested according to? The law of Moses, right? When you think of the law of Moses, what do you think of? The Ten Commandments, right? Deuteronomy 9, 9. Moses tells them, When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave to me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And all them, on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain in the midst of the assembly. So I want you to see this. The keepers of the law, the Pharisees, the experts in the law, the Pharisees, are coming to test Jesus according to the law of Moses. And Jesus goes, oh yeah, you mean that book I wrote? That's what's happening here. That's what John is telling you here. Not only is Jesus the perfect keeper of the law that we see told in the story, John is telling us Jesus is the author of the law. It is his finger that wrote the book of life. Now, as a point of application this morning, like I said before, my hope is that on Reformation Sunday we wouldn't just celebrate the doctrines of grace but the dispenser of grace. That we wouldn't just celebrate that we're saved by faith alone, but in whom that faith is placed alone. According to the scriptures, which are alone are understood to be pointing to him for his glory. Now, some of you, when you read that passage, you go, I'm so glad I'm just not like those nasty Pharisees. Right? I mean, I'm much more like that. Well, I don't want to say I'm like that woman. Um, The reality is all of us have done this to Jesus, have done this to God. We have come to God and we have lived our lives in such a way where we say, I know better how to live my life. 
I know I'm supposed to act this way. I know I'm supposed to pray for my enemies. I know I'm supposed to forgive those who persecute me. I know I'm supposed to bear the burdens of others. I know I'm supposed to live with my spouse in this way, loving or respectful. I know that I'm supposed to honor my parents, but they're just really not that honorable. I know that, you know, we start making excuses about how our circumstances in our situation excuse our faithfulness. And what we're really saying is, I know better than Jesus how to live my life. I mean, pray for our leaders. Do you know who our leaders are going to be? <laughs> Honor. Some of you may be saying that about your spouse. Really? You want me to respect this person? Do you want me to love this person? Do you want me to forgive this person? Do you want me to, really? I think, I think it would be better for me to show a little bit more discipline, a little bit more withholding of love, withholding of prayers, withholding of respect. I know better in this situation how this should be handled. When you do that, you are doing what they did to Jesus in that moment. You are saying, in this situation, in these circumstances, I think I really kind of know better than Jesus how I ought to live my life. Whether it's because it's expedient, whether because it's just hard and difficult because the teachings of Scripture are easy to understand. They're really hard to obey. That's why we need faith and we need grace. So this morning, I would just humbly submit this question to you. In what areas of your life are you essentially saying to Jesus, I know better than you? When you say that, you are not putting your faith in Jesus. The thing that we celebrate today that life comes through faith in Jesus, you're not putting your faith in Jesus, you're putting your faith in yourself. You're putting your faith in something else. And I would humbly submit to you that what Jesus says, he says, oh, you mean that that life of yours? That thing that I knit together with my own two hands? You think you know better than me how life ought to be lived? Trust me. I'm the author of life. I'm the author of your life. Put your faith in me and find life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us life, that you have given us grace, that you have given us the gift of your Son, that you have shown us love in the most sacrificial way, that you have demonstrated that you are trustworthy, that we can trust you, that you love us, that when things are hard, that you did not Uh, stand back from a distance, but that, Jesus, you came and became like us in every way, yet without sin. That you aren't a God who stands at a distance, but that you came and got dirty with us, that you became flesh and walked amongst us, that you suffered alongside us, and that ultimately you suffered for us, all to demonstrate that you are a God that can be trusted, a God that we know loves us because of what you sacrificed for us and the way that you demonstrated it by sending your Son. We ask now that you would fill us with your Spirit, that we might believe again. Help us in our unbelief. Grant us by your spirit faith again in Jesus to walk in his ways and to believe his good words to us this morning. 
We ask it in his precious name and for his glory and our good. Amen.